1: Jim Taddy. Hi, everybody. Thank you, Mike Ross. Welcome to Episode 8, Season 3 of Leafs Guy. David Alter is our special guest today from inside the Maple Leafs and the Sports Illustrated Media Group, going over an overtime loss at home to Vegas that was preceded by three impressive wins that was preceded by a West Coast swing that wasn't so good. So the ultimate question would be, what do we have here? Well, we'll give you the answer to that very shortly. But in the meantime... NFL Sundays are only getting better, and so are the incredible offers at DraftKings Sportsbook, an official sports betting partner of the NFL. Right now, new customers can bet just $5 on any NFL team to win and get $200 in free bets if they do. Check this out. Right now, everyone can earn up to a 100% boost with DraftKings stepped-up same-game parlays. Go to the DraftKings Sportsbook app, place a same-game parlay, and combine multiple bets like which team will win, player props, and point totals. Boy, I should have done this last week. For my Lions, unfortunately did not. With payouts bigger than ever, DraftKings Sportsbook is the go-to when betting the NFL. Here is the call to action. Download the DraftKings Sportsbook app now. Use the promo code THPN and place a $5 pregame money line bet and get $200 in free bets if your team wins. Only at DraftKings Sportsbook, an official sports betting partner of the NFL. Use the code THPN. Eligibility restrictions apply. See DraftKings.com for complete details. So the ultimate question as I said going into that spiel was what do we have here? Well, a 4-3 overtime loss at home to Vegas was negotiable. In fact, every goal that Vegas got was a Leaf giveaway, basically. And that really uh, flies in the face of what had happened before. 3-1 in Carolina when the coach got the blender out and, and just did a marvelous job halfway through that game to come up with a turning point. The, just a fantastic start-to-finish game at home and a win against Boston. And they come out of a just a, a weird segment of games on a road trip with a 5-2 win at home to Philadelphia. So I guess the ultimate question would be, based on those three wins, Do we look at the losses that sort of bookend around or sort of surround the three wins differently? Do we do that? I do. Let's find out what David Alter thinks about that. So, David, I posed this question to our listeners earlier. Because there's those three wins in a row... Do you look at the loss against Vegas on Tuesday night differently and the games on the California trip? Do you look at those losses differently now because they're they're centered by those three nice wins?
0: Yeah, I mean, I I think you have to at that point, Um, not even just in the fact that, um, you know, they lost in overtime. They had losses in overtime on the road, too. But, you know, they it's unfortunate they can't manage the game and and they end up losing uh, the lead in the third period, but they did it against a very good team. And for the most part, they played a pretty good game. They didn't replicate the lack of effort that they had in that losing streak in that particular game. So I think you have to look at it as a positive in that regard. And um, they kind of keep going forward that way. So it's a, it's a pretty good effort for Toronto. They have to figure out how to manage games against good teams, but uh, in some ways, Sheldon Keith kind of referred to it, and he's kind of right that it's a blessing. That had they dominated or had they come out with a win and had those issues in those games, maybe that gets into their head, or at least by not finishing out that game and holding on to a lead, there's still teachable moments, and his hold his uh, words can still hold weight at the subsequent practices.
1: Yeah I mean it's um it's a work in progress that's for sure and I, I think that um uh, that you would agree that uh, when you look at the losses in particular and compare them to the wins um there's moments there where they just sort of um I don't want to say regressive but they're just they're not they, they don't play with the same energy and they're giving the puck away and and when they're winning they're playing with a lot of energy and they're not giving the puck away
0: Yeah and um I, I think you saw in the first period, there were glimpses of that. There was that turnover from Rasmus Sandine and Timothy Lilligren later on uh, where you, you were just kind of like, oh no, is this kind of the return uh, in, in that regard? So um, there, there are some of those things that, that did start creeping up into it. But I think for the most part, for the Maple Leafs, it's just continuing to kind of show an effort, play the game that they played, And continue to push and attack. And um, I think one of the things that you saw, especially in the later portions of that first period against Vegas, and then for much of the second period, is that they were aggressive. And they continued to stay aggressive. And if there were mistakes that led to some breakaways like they had in that game, that at least their aggression... Uh, had enough offense that they were still able to get a result out of it. So uh, perhaps against some of the other teams that are coming up that are not as aggressive as Vegas, uh, that will yield some better results for them.
1: So what part of the team are you happy with? I mean, it was nice to see the elite players sort of lead them out of the wood. uh, Tavares against Philadelphia and Austin Matthews uh, certainly against Boston. That's nice to see. But is there anything else that that sort of uh, caught your eye and and you see as a development in terms of putting the team together?
0: yeah well i mean look the the big story to me outside of the top two lines was going to be secondary scoring right like they they paraded about the fact that they had three lines that could score and a bottom six that's as good as anyone else's and they really wanted to change the identity of the the fourth line and they just they didn't seem to have that they um they really struggled with that. But then ever since they put Dennis Malgin on that line with Aston Reese and David Kampf, they've got some of that stabilized. And so that's good. And, and I think that that's given the Leafs some freedom that when they have to control situations or come out setting off the right foot, uh, they've got a, a, a bottom six line that they trust. And you saw that when the camp line started the last six consecutive periods of hockey and no matter who was on the ice whether it was home or road that was the that was the matchup that they went with and there's trust there now and so I think that that's a positive development uh on the flip side appearing volcali Yarncrow third line or I guess fourth line depending on the minutes and situations has kind of been a, a bit of a disaster. So. Uh, I like what they've done in that regard. I like some of the stability that the Leafs have had defensively now. And uh, the goaltending hasn't been much of an issue, despite the fact that their top two goalies are out right now. So those are all pretty good things with the Maple Leafs. But uh, certainly there are some issues still, like I mentioned. And um, I'm sure we'll get to those because it's it's been, it's been a wild ride with the Leafs. But uh, when you look at where they are in the divisional standings, that's right about where they are right now. A good team. Uh, but certainly capable of being a great team, and that's kind of been the struggle with them so far.
1: Yeah, I mean, there's there's a couple of items there. Uh, the goaltending, even with the third string, has has been uh, much less a concern than I thought it would have been. It's pretty uh, pretty pretty even keeled story there, even with the two injuries. Uh, but it's it's the um, I guess the uh, the the mix and match, the blender up front, the forwards. Wasn't expecting that. There's a lot of work being done there to find right combinations, isn't there?
0: There is, and one of the things that was uh, kind of interesting to me was that they they do this after wins now. They do this based on matchups and opponents and trying to find the right mix. Um, I think if Nick Robertson was a bit more consistent offensively, there wouldn't be as much of the shifting. I think that that's, that's had something to do with it. Um, but also, Austin Matthews, Is not at that same clip from an even strength scoring standpoint as he used to be, and that's kind of had to kind of change the wingers there to see what's the right mix to get him going. So that's why you're seeing Alex Kerfoot in that spot sometimes and moving Michael Bunting down. So there has been a little bit more, but I also got the sense that there's some different things that are kind of being tried that the Leafs hadn't really done before, and I point to uh that game against Carolina. When can you ever recall the Leafs winning a game where they really didn't do much in the middle? Like they really kind of sat back and didn't play a Sheldon Keefe-like game where they kind of protected the defensive side in the interior throughout the whole game and managed to gut out a victory that way. I can't recall that happening. And so by doing different things that way, that's changed some of the line matchups and things that have kind of established for the Leafs that, Hey, you know what? Maybe they have a B game where they could win and not just play this certain way. And, um, and that requires a bit of line shuffling when you're going to play that way too. So I think that that has some, some element to it because I can't recall a team kind of realizing early on that we're we're just not doing it on the offensive level and that team can match us that way. So we're going to adjust and sit back and protect the middle on the back end and then try to go to transition the other way. It's not the way the Leafs play. And to see them do that effectively and win, I think opened up their eyes a little bit to when they actually have the difficult competition uh, coming in that they can shuffle up the lines around and they can gut out victories.
1: Well, that specific game against Carolina, uh what he did at the midway point of the second period, uh you know, he changed his top two lines around and uh dropped bunting uh, elevated Robertson, swapped centers. Uh, you know Matthews taking Tavares's role, and and, and likewise, um, and and then you know had a two line rotation for a couple of rotations through, and then went to the third and fourth lines, and the third and fourth lines really delivered. I, I really loved that because you could do that and, and have it backfire or not work, but but that worked almost like it was exactly uh, planned to work, that and, and it, it provided a victory. Uh, the question that would come out of that is why would you then go back to the original setup? Uh, for the next game, because that seemed to work.
0: Well, I mean, they did and they didn't, right? So they did. The only thing they they kept the same from that previous game was by putting Marner back with Matthews and Nylander back with Tavares. But other than that, lines one through four were the same as the switch that they made in the beginning of the second period against the Carolina Hurricanes. So that's just tinkering being thinking okay this is an offensive team those guys are going to get it going but the wingers and changing up the wingers and and what that brought to those lines had a lot more to do with with kind of fixing it up where when they split Matthews and Marner in that game against Carolina it seemed that it was more to do with the matchups that they were seeing because it looked like the Matthews Marner line was getting the most amount of coverage from from Carolina's main, uh, main lines in terms of coverage and, and and protecting them up that they felt that they had no other choice to split them up. So they took elements of the wingers and and the changes that they made there, but then they switched back Austin Matthews and Mitch Marner. Marner still had the offensive touch. It seemed to be the right move. And I, I I wouldn't be surprised if they have another difficult opponent or they realize early in a game that those guys aren't scoring that they, They pull the trigger and make that kind of switch again. It seemed like for the most part, they don't like doing that, but if they see something early in the game, that's not allowing for spread distribution in terms of coverage, then it's like the equivalent of in football, when your defense is going up against a strong passing game, the other side's going to have to kind of do something different and establish a run game, right? Like, to, to keep the opposing defense honest. And I think that's really what that was all about.
1: I mean, really, if you, if you go, uh, you know, apply the microscopic analysis here that while they're changing the lines, really it's the left side that they're tinkering with, isn't it?
0: Yeah. I mean, for the most part, it is that, and it's, it's the left side with the exception of Nick Robertson, although to some degree that's kind of Nick Robertson's role as well, but the left side on the Maple Leafs, has generally been create the space for the skilled guys on your on your line. That's generally what it's been, but also have that ability to bury it when the puck comes back to you. So Alex Kerfoot has probably been arguably the best guy in terms of that role. Uh, Michael Bunting's been a pretty close second, primarily when he's played with Austin Matthews and Mitch Marner, but it hasn't been Providing the same kind of offense lately, so they try and move him down and and figure things out that way. But also, it's a compliment to him because, like I said earlier in the show, the Cali croak experiment just really has not been working out. Like it really hasn't for what they expected him to be. It's it's not providing that offense, and it's gotten to the point where they've really had to experiment with Pierre Angval being a center now,
1: yeah. and that
0: really that really wasn't the role he was in there. Yarncroak supposed to be the more guy in that spot where you then put Engval on the wing. But now you've got Engval playing center because Yarncroak is just not firing in that same element. And so Michael Bunting might be that guy that can create the space form. But maybe Michael Bunting is the point getter on that line now, even though he's the left winger. It really is the the biggest missing piece right now on the Leafs. When it comes to the four lines rolling for the most part, they know what their top two lines are with some tinkering and they've kind of figured it out now with uh, Dennis Malgin, with David Kampf and Aston Reese as a bottom six line. And then it's a jumbled mess in that other bottom line to figure out what that line is supposed to be.
1: Yeah, I mean, that's curious because really what we're talking about is Engval centering uh, out of position and Yarncroft uh, not not delivering, and that has a ripple effect on, on the left side on, on three lines. And, you know, you described uh, these wingers. We're talking about Kerfoot, Robertson, and, and Bunting, these guys that create space, and, and they do, but they're not power forwards. They're not the, the normal or the typical type of space creators, are they? No, they aren't. And,
0: I mean, a lot of that is going to deal with uh, Nick Robertson and- learning to adjust in that element of his game uh i it was a great point when they came when it came to defensemen that sheldon keith mentioned that um you know most defensemen who come into league are just so used to one certain way if they were offensive defensemen that when they have to come into the league they have to adjust and then the offense comes with it where for the first few years of nick robertson's career as a forward that seemed to be kind of figure out the back end responsibilities of your game that come with playing at the NHL level. But now, you know, he's not a power forward. They're, they're wanting him to score and they want him to be a a contributor every day. And the ideal spot for him is in that top six, but he's got to continue to, to, to provide that. And he's got to do some of those other things that those top six guys do that, that don't necessarily mean he's going to be putting up the points, but he could be setting up for points or receiving for points. And so he's got to learn to kind of create that space. And that was why he talked about all the weight he added in the offseason to be more aggressive in the puck battles and, and better on his edges and and some of the other things that come with that spot. So um, it's coming. It's just a matter of of finding that role. And I think him moving between lines two through four is not going to be the way. Like they really need some stability as to who these left wingers are supposed to be, and you can make subtle changes every now and then. But I think in someone like Robertson's case, I I think consistency is probably better for him than than a lack thereof.
1: Yeah, like all things Maple Leaf, uh, you can look at you know the reality of the situation now, but you also project into the playoffs. And when I look at that left side, it's just not big enough. For me, and I don't know how you solve that with the salary cap problems they have, but I that that would be my concern going in that that maybe one of the three could overachieve, or maybe two, but you're going to be lined up against somebody who has that power forward that the least don't have,
0: yeah. And I mean, Kelly Yarncroke's a little bit bigger, but the problem is he plays on the right side and not on the left side, and so he's a little bit bigger than some of the other guys in there, but in terms of pure power guys part of that is the identity with the team to have that kind of size, but with that same skill that can, that can keep up or keep up rather with those guys. Like we saw it with Nick Ritchie, like he was kind of the prototypical power forward there, yeah. but he just didn't have the size to kind of stick around. So um, it's finding that, that tricky balance there about what works in that regard. And um, yeah, it's just a matter of, Who's going to fit in that spot? Michael Bunting, I think, is going to be very, very well be back on that line before you know it. Uh, Then it's just a matter of is Nick Roberts in the stabilizing factor on that second line? And can he be the everyday guy? Sure. And then you can move Nick. uh, Then you can move Alex Kerfoot to perhaps be that third line center, which is probably where he should be at this point on that line, which is how he started the season. Um, and then maybe that refreshes everyone else there because they struggled off the hop. But I think it's some of the inconsistencies with that top duo that have just kind of spilled over. And it's really just been kind of figuring out the Rubik's cube at this point.
1: Yeah. I mean, it's easy to diagnose the problem. The the solution is uh, is a rare find. And we talked about Richie, just he could not skate with the other guys. And, and you know, the other thing is, is that you could have the size and you could be able to skate. You've got to be a, a chemistry fit with high-end players like Matthews and Marner or Tavares and Nylander. And that's not everybody.
0: No, it isn't. And you also run the risk of if you want to trade for that person, you want to do it sooner rather than later to figure out if it works or it doesn't work. Just look at um, Nick Foligno as an excellent example of of who the the Toronto Maple Leafs tried to get as a second line left winger uh, at the deadline in 2021. Granted, he had injuries, um, but it just, it didn't work out. It, maybe there wasn't enough time for it to work out. And that that's to my point, that if you're going to want to go out and get someone who's kind of like that, then you got to do it earlier rather than later. The problem also right now is that the Leafs are at 50 contracts. Yeah, They have to figure out what, what assets do you want to divest. And then you're not seeing a lot of trades right now because unless teams have injuries, they don't have room. Like, that's, that's the reality of it. So you kind of have to wait things out and wait for long-term injuries, problems where you can do true hockey trades. And there's not a lot of those out either. So it's difficult. The Leafs are just kind of in a spot right now where they just kind of have to figure out with the group. Um, if someone doesn't work out, like a Nicholas Obey-Kubel who went on waivers last week and got picked up by Washington, that might free up some flexibility. But other than that, you, you kind of have to use this time that you have still plenty of games in the season to kind of figure out who works best with whom.
1: Okay. Let's deal with the goaltending. Um, Matt Murray working his way back. When do you think it's feasible for him to be added to that roster?
0: It could happen as soon as this weekend, maybe even Friday. The interesting thing about this is, you know, Matt Murray's going to say what he's going to say, which is that he's day to day. They're taking it one day at a time. Uh, didn't bite on any questions about a timeline. La- a timeline for when he could come back. Um, interesting for Sheldon Keith. He kind of mentioned that when Murray went through this injury or he was diagnosed with it, this was the weekend that they were targeting for him to come back. But it's not going to be up to him. It's going to be up to medical staff. But he looked pretty good in practice today. He had no restriction in his mobility. at fielded shots looked fine has one more practice on thursday if he gets through both of those he could come back as soon as friday or saturday depending on what the leafs want to do in terms of how they split up those back-to-back games you know if if murray does go there's a debate about if it should be friday or saturday to give him that extra day but then do you really want him to be the guy on the second half of a back-to-back when the team in in front of him is going to be a little bit tired. So there's that factor to kind of figure out. So my best guess right now, based on what was said without saying it, is that I think we see see, uh, Matt Murray back this weekend, Friday or perhaps Saturday. I don't know which one of the two, but it's leaning in that direction without them saying or putting a timeline on things.
1: Okay, let's play yes guy, no guy. Yes guy, no guy, number one. Michael Bunting's constant shuffling on the left side is a reflection of his play.
0: I think that's a yes guy to some degree. I mean, he has to take some of it as well. Um, It's technically the sophomore slump because he did have a rookie year last year, despite how you want to go about how he qualified for it. Um, So being with those same guys... Uh the, uh the the opposition now knowing how to kind of build on those tendencies and defend, he's got to have to be better. Like he's, Austin Matthews and Mitch Marner have to up their scoring, sure, but he's got to be better as well. So I say yes, guy.
1: Yes, guy, no guy number two. The constant shuffling on the left side of the lead forward unit is cause for concern.
0: No, I don't think so. No guy for me. I think this is the time where you kind of have to figure out what works and what doesn't work. If we were having the same conversation in March, I would say yes, Sky. And the, and the Leafs were doing that; they were shuffling lines even in the in March when they moved uh, William Nylander for a brief spot on the third line when he was kind of struggling. And so there were there were things where that that's going to happen throughout the year. I think they do need to kind of find some stability relatively soon. Uh, but injuries are going to happen, and it's going to create a lot of shuffling. So I'm going no guy.
1: Yes guy, no guy number three. Goaltender Shogren is actually better than you expected.
0: No guy. I think Eric Shogren has... he is, It's been of a weird mixed bag with him. When he has been in the lineup before the injury to Sam Soenov, uh, I haven't liked his game at all. And then when he's kind of thrust into to a situation where he's not expecting it, that's where he seems to play well uh you will remember i believe he won the swedish hockey league uh, title kind of coming out of nowhere when their starter got injured in the playoffs and he helped run the table so it's great that he can come in and then last year when he kind of had to be thrust into a spot i believe he picked up a shout out if it was his first game if it wasn't his first it was his second game and so then he was fine and then there was the drop off so I need to see some consistency from him because there just hasn't been that. It's been a good three games for him, but there hasn't been enough of a consistency uh, where I think that he's been better than expected.
1: Yes, guy, no guy number four. Defenseman Timothy Liljegren keeps upping the bar on his own performance.
0: Yes, yes, guy. Look, I think that, well, what's really great about Timothy Liljegren is the fact that uh, in his first full year, he kind of absorbed absolutely everything that was required of him to become an everyday defenseman in the NHL and to be back in just three games from a hernia and, and fit in really well. You made the odd mistake here and there, but for the most part fitting in nicely with someone like Morgan Riley, who outside of TJ Brody has had difficulty finding a consistent defensive partner. It has been a great thing. And uh, there's a self-awareness about him now, even in the second intermission of the game where, where you, he had goals he said that he was probably still his worst game because he's judging himself not by being a goal scorer anymore, but about how well he plays defensively. And he had that wherewithal to realize that, you know, scoring is nice, but he's got to be better in that regard. And so it's very different between him and Sandine. Sandine drafted one year later, um, but it looked like Sandine was ahead of him on the org chart about a year ago, a year and a half ago or so. Now it's Lilligren by, by a country mile.
1: And supplemental, yes guy, no guy to finish it off. He actually spends more time with Morgan Riley than not.
0: Uh yes guy. It's and I the only reason I say that right now is because of the lack of clarity with someone like Jake Muzzin. Like yeah. I I real I really think that because we don't have Jake Muzzin around, and it doesn't sound like that's going to be happening anytime soon, that. TJ Brody is relied upon way too much to be a stabilizer to fix things with someone like Justin Hall that that's just going to force Morgan Riley to have someone else. You saw that with Elia Labushkin last year uh, and he had a prototypical right side guy and Lilligren being back has seemed to kind of stabilize things for Morgan Riley because um, despite everything they've tried there outside of TJ Brody and that one game where Riley played on the right side, which didn't go particularly well, you need a bona fide right-handed shot that can that can play in that role for someone like Morgan Riley outside of TJ Brody. So
1: I think you're going to see that pair for for quite a while now. David, thanks very much. Appreciate it. You got it. Thanks to David Alter, and thank you for stopping by. Hope you enjoyed Leaf Sky, Episode Eight, Season Three. Hope you come back next week for Episode Nine.